Hi, my name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover Two Resources, a nonprofit organization founded in memory of my son, Sam, who died of a heroin overdose in October. Our mission is to provide education, support, and advocacy for those affected by the growing opioid epidemic in our country. I'd like to welcome you to this Cover Two Resources podcast. This is an ongoing audio series in which we interview people who are making a difference in the fight against opioid addiction. Our goal here is to raise awareness and connect users and their families with resources to fight opioid addiction. Hi, this is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover Two Resources, and I'm here today with Dr. Tom Gilson, the medical examiner for the Cuyahoga County. Doctor, welcome. Good afternoon, sir. Thank you for having us in today. Well, thanks for bringing this to attention. Yeah. Doctor, you've, uh, you've been the Cuyahoga County medical examiner for over five years. During that time, you've seen the opioid epidemic emerge. Can you describe that? I've been here for five years. I've been a medical examiner for 22 years. Um, what happened in Cuyahoga County is that in the last five years, we've really seen a big rise in illegal narcotics, heroin, fentanyl. What was going on before that was a big spike up in prescription narcotics, the oxycodones, hydrocodones, and things like that. And then we started, about the time I arrived here, to see a big transition, especially over to heroin. And if we went back and looked at how many overdoses of heroin we had, say in 2006, it was about 40. By the time we got up to 2012, it was over 100. And the last few years, it's been up close to 200. So how does 2016 compare to prior years for opioid overdoses? In spite of the fact that we've really made a serious collaborative effort in Cuyahoga County for close to four and a half years, this problem took on a very different turn in 2016. We had seen in 2015 a slight decrease in the number of heroin overdoses. We went down from 195 or so down to about 185. It was still alarmingly high, but that was the first time we'd seen a decrease. What happened in 2015, just to sort of set what we see in 2016, is fentanyl, which is another narcotic that is far more potent than heroin, there was just a big influx of that in the illegal drug trade, and we saw our number of deaths from heroin rise from 37 in 2014 to 91 by the end of 2015. <clears throat> that didn't change. That got worse since the start of this year. And we've had consistently higher overdose death rates every month of 2016, to the point now where we've seen as many drug overdose deaths in 2016, as you know, we saw in all of 2015, going through a half a year. And most of them have been fentanyl. Heroin and fentanyl. Uh, we see much more fentanyl now, and I think that that's made a big game-changing impact on things because 
Heroin is not by any means a, a safe drug, but fentanyl either by itself or mixed with heroin just increases the likelihood of a fatal outcome substantially. So its potency, I've heard, is much greater than heroin. Sure. I mean, if we think of heroin, most of the time you'll do your baseline comparisons to morphine. Uh, heroin is about, you know, four to five times the potency of morphine. Fentanyl is about 50 to 60 times the potency of morphine. So we're talking a significant almost, you know, 10-time-fold increase of potency. So... Um Oftentimes, we'll hear about people doing very well in their recovery, and then they have a relapse, and boom, they're gone. Why is that? It's one of the heartbreaking things, I think, about a disease like this that's chronic relapsing is part of the natural history of addiction. It doesn't mean people have to relapse, but when they do, one of the unforgiving things about these drugs is a person will frequently relapse after a period of clean time, and in that clean time have lost their tolerance. So say a person starts out using, you know, one unit of drug. Over time, they develop this phenomenon called tolerance, so that to get the same effect, now they need two, maybe then little time goes by, they need four. Say they get clean when they are up at four, their tolerance for the drug goes back to one over a few weeks. Then they go back... A few weeks, that short yeah, of time. short period of time is that. They go back and say, I'm going to try four because that's what I used to do, and they can't tolerate that anymore, and they overdose there. And we see that in a couple of distinct situations. One is people who get out of treatment and stay clean for a period of time. They can't take that same dose that they could before. The other are people who have kind of an enforced detoxification because they're incarcerated. And that's an observation that goes back as long as I've been doing medical examiner work, that people who leave jail tend to overdose very rapidly after they leave because they tried the same dose they remember they could use, and they can't tolerate that anymore. So losing tolerance is a big hazard in relapse. And one of the things that we've tried to do in my office to kind of reach out to these folks is people leaving treatment or jail get a letter from our office to try some risk reduction things. We don't want to see people relapse, period. But if they're going to make that, you know, choice to go back to those things, they should be, you know, not using drugs by themselves because you're never going to get yourself out of an overdose. But if somebody's there who can call 911 or give the antidote naloxone, that increases your chance of not dying from an overdose. And especially in those vulnerable periods, leaving treatment or leaving incarceration, those are big times when people shouldn't be out trying to recapture things, especially by themselves. For some of our listeners, they're, uh, they may be unfamiliar with uh, what happens in and physically in an opioid overdose. Maybe you could briefly go through that. Sure. I think, you know, what opioids are designed to do is relieve pain. The other byproduct of their action is that they act on 
breathing centers in the brain, and they cause a person's breathing to either slow down dramatically or even stop. When those two come together in an overdose, the person frequently will nod off, they'll fall asleep, and their breathing will become more and more shallow over time and eventually stop. While that's happening, people will frequently say the person will be sound like they're snoring a lot because they're basically not getting enough air movement through and they're going to start to try to compensate and have louder respirations that suddenly stop. That's a time when a person's really in trouble because now they're not breathing anymore and they're going to die very shortly after that happens. But frequently it's kind of like going to sleep and not waking up. So I don't think these folks suffer. I'll always say that to families, but, you know, obviously they don't wake up from it either. It's a terrible outcome. So the antidote that you talked about a little bit earlier, naloxone, it's now uh, being made available uh, much more readily out there, for free, in fact, through Project Dawn and through many of the uh, pharmacies in our area. Um, Can you speak to when that comes into play and, and... any comments on naloxone? Sure. Um, one of the things that we noticed when we looked at our drug overdose fatalities was a lot of these people had died either using drugs with other people or just in close proximity to somebody else, family member. For example, say, you know, my son came home, he looked high. And he went up to bed and they found him the next morning and he wasn't breathing and he had died. What we realized is that that was a time to start potentially intervening in this process. People don't necessarily take heroin or fentanyl and it's irreversible. They overdose and there's no chance to bring them back. There is a window of time where if you can reverse the effects of the drug, you can potentially save that person's life. And that's where naloxone comes into play. Morphine and all of its similar compounds act on a receptor in the brain called the Mu receptor. It's the Greek letter M for morphine. And when the narcotics act on it, they generate the pain relief, they generate the depression of breathing, the slowing down of breathing. When naloxone binds to it, it kicks morphine and a lot of other things off, and it doesn't do anything. In fact, you know, it reverses the effects of those drugs, including that respiratory depression. So it's almost sometimes almost miraculous how rapidly somebody will reverse from a, you know, overdose and sli- you know, basically they're on their way out dying to being back almost, you know, hyper alert. Um, that's the benefit of naloxone. And as you said, you know, kits are available through Project Dawn, both at Metro Health Medical Center, at the Free Clinic, at the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. Uh, and that's in part, you know, funded by the county, so there's no charge to people. Or you could purchase these kits through some of the pharmacy chains who've now, you know, had the initiative to just make the drug available at cost. <clears throat> so, um, Dr. Gilson, uh, as you know, my son, uh, Sam, died of a heroin overdose, and the, uh, the heroin was heavily laced with fentanyl. Um, 
you had a chance to, to review the uh, examiner's report. Is there anything else that we can glean from that that may be beneficial to the, our audience? You know, Greg, I, I feel like one lesson is that, you know, you're not alone in this. I, I, you know, I, I certainly don't downplay losing, you know, a family member. And I've had that experience too. But I think, you know, what you're doing is admirable because lots of families have this story. And the more we, you know, say, I don't want to talk about it, you know, it's kind of like the 800-pound gorilla in the living room. It's not going away. So, you know, to destigmatize this disease of drug addiction is a big thing because one of the things that we do learn is that people don't all die from, people who are addicted to drugs don't all die from overdoses. Treatment works. But if we're so stigmatized that we're not going to seek that treatment out for ourselves or our loved ones, it's not going to work. So that's one lesson I would take away from that on a personal level. Other things that, you know, I would say for sure are buying drugs on the street is a, it's a roll of the dice that you're not guaranteed what's coming in that product. And I think, you know, somebody in the throes of addiction doesn't really have a choice a lot of times. You know, they just don't want to feel the effects of opiate withdrawal. But, you know, one of the just, you know, tragic things about this kind of a situation is I think somebody's purchasing something with an idea of getting a certain product, heroin, which by itself has a lot of bad, you know, consequences. And then to have the fentanyl added to it on top of it, which is just so much more potent, really is a bigger risk for somebody to overdose and not wake up from that. Um, something else uh, that we talked about a little bit earlier and was true for, for Sam as well. Sam was a dual diagnosis. Um, Sam uh, was addicted to opioids and, uh, and he also had mental illness. And you and I spoke of the fact that of the people that um, have uh, you know, died that you've examined, uh, as you've gone back through and uh, added it up, there's something on the order of 40% of the uh, opioid-addicted deaths that uh, you've reviewed have also been a dual diagnosis with some mental illness. Is there anything that we might be able to learn from that or any takeaway there that we might be able to share? Well, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to go back and look at these individuals who died is because I think that they are going to potentially, you know, teach us things about how to address the problem going forward. I think a couple things come to mind when we see such a high percentage of the addicts who are dual diagnosed, be it bipolar disorder, depression, other forms of mental illness, anxiety. And first lesson, I think, is to the prescribers, you know, the treating physicians is, you know, if these folks are coming for treatment, be aware they might have a substance abuse problem. Because, again, what we see in my office is the tip of the iceberg, I think. And there's probably lots of people out there who are addicted to pain medication who are seeing 
physician, a treating physician. And that's the time to intervene potentially to treatment and successful recovery. I think when we get people into recovery, it's an opportunity to address mental health issues. I can't imagine that, you know, I don't have numbers to back this up, but you don't start at the same starting line if you're untreated mental illness and you have substance abuse issues. But if we can address depression or something like that, I have to think that that improves the chances of somebody being able to recover from the substance abuse addiction, too. You're in uh, kind of a unique position to, uh, to learn from the dead and teach the living, so to speak. So what else have you learned that you'd like to teach in regard to this topic? Well, there's a lot of places where we can potentially intervene. Um, you know, I, I think when anybody loses somebody to an overdose, our tendency is to kind of look back and see, did we, was there any sign that we didn't pick up on? And I think that, you know, those are harder things. I don't get to see that necessarily. But in talking with other people in our county who've been working on this problem, you know, some of the things that we should look for are sudden changes in behavior. You know, is somebody more withdrawn? Do they seem more depressed? Um, you know, do they? does their behavior seem more erratic? Not that they're absolutely hard and fast, you know, signs, but they're worth exploring as a potential, you know, setup for substance abuse. We have to watch out for people who are injured either, you know, on the job, in the sport, you know, whatever, weekend warrior, you know, that kind of thing. Because that's another group of people who are going to potentially go down this pathway of substance abuse with legal narcotics, and we're over-prescribing narcotics in this country, that substance abuse, and then when the legal sources get turned off because the person's showing the signs of addiction, then, you know, we start to find these folks showing up purchasing medication on the street, or when that becomes too expensive, heroin, fentanyl, and things like that. So I think that, you know, recognizing when we might have somebody in trouble and knowing that story, you know, wasn't so-and-so, you know, in a car accident and they had a lot of pain medication prescribed a few months ago. Why is their behavior so different now? Maybe because they got addicted to pain medicine. If, you know, we can intervene there, might get them off the path. We mentioned the naloxone as another intervention. You know, if you know somebody you care about is addicted to these medications or illegal drugs, the heroin, the fentanyl, the oxycodone, I would rather see those people not use drugs, but I also would rather not see them come to this office. So naloxone keeps people from coming to this office. And Project Dawn is probably, you know, one of the most valuable investments the county ever made. Our county executive funded the program with Metro Health Medical Center initially, and now I think, you know, other avenues of funding are opening up. But, you know, we've saved hundreds of people with Project Dawn. 
And I think, again, it's another number that doesn't necessarily get fully reported back to us, but with confirmed, you know, stories or, you know, visits to the emergency department. That's, you know, a couple hundred people who didn't make a trip to this office and a couple hundred families that didn't have to get the phone call that, you know, their loved one had passed away. So if you have somebody you know like that, you know, who's addicted, <clears throat> absolutely encourage them to get the naloxone, but it's not isolated to the addict themselves. Family members can get naloxone from the sources we mentioned as well. So uh, that's a key thing. The last, uh, you know, or a couple other things. There are drug drop boxes all over Cuyahoga County, frequently at police stations. If you have prescription pain medication left over in your medicine cabinet, uh, get rid of it. Don't save it for a rainy day. I think, you know, sometimes we think that, you know, if I have a toothache in two months, it'll be nice if I have pain medicine. If you have a toothache in two months, go back and get a prescription for it and decide at that time whether you need it. Don't save the pain medication because over and over again we see younger people start to experiment with these medications in mom and dad's medicine cabinet, get addicted to them, and they're off on the same path as, you know, the folks who got them legally prescribed to them can go down. So get rid of them, you know, and I think the last issue is why do we have so many people with pain medicine in their medicine cabinets? It's because we overprescribe pain medication in this country, and that's something I know the medical board and a lot of us have been just trying to work with the medical community to say, listen, we don't need all this pain medication. If a country with 5% of the world's population consumes 95% of its pain medication, there's something not right in how we're treating pain in this country. No doubt. So, Doctor, do you have any final words for our listeners? I think about this on a very regular basis, and I really think this will kind of be the public health crisis of my whole career. It's hard to watch people just vanish in such big numbers. And I think that the urgency of this problem is still sinking in on a lot of levels. You know, what we do essentially in Cuyahoga County every year up until now is basically load up a couple plane loads of people and just crash them into Lake Erie. You know, and this year will be worse. And I have to say, you know, are we doing enough? That's my question. You know, and I, I don't I don't know that I would say yes to that because we're not turning the tide on this. And you know, if we lost so many people from say Zika viruses, we lost in one month in Cuyahoga County, what would our reaction be? You know, do we have to keep waiting for the Philip Seymour Hoffmans or the princes to get our attention on this. Our neighbors are dying around us in so many, you know, with such frequency. We need to do a better job with this. And I don't have all the answers to that, but I thank, you know, folks like you, Greg, who just, let's keep getting the message out there because it's not going away. And it is that gorilla in the room that doesn't get, it doesn't go away because we pretend it's not there. I want to thank you, Doctor. Um, terrific. This has uh, really been my pleasure to, uh, to interview you today. For, uh, at the end. <laughs> yeah, well, that was uh, 
Just um, so uh, this concludes our podcast today. Uh, we've been visiting with Dr. Tom Gilson, the medical examiner for Cuyahoga County. And uh, again, Tom, uh, I really appreciate uh, your uh, having us in for the interview today and absolutely appreciate not only your hard work to address the opiate epidemic, but also the education that you've, uh, you know, been providing in our community throughout Northeast Ohio, not, you know, well beyond even Cuyahoga County. And so uh, that's much appreciated and much needed. So a lot of, uh, one more plug, uh, there's a lot of information on our website too about what's going on in terms of at least the problem as we see it. And that's just, uh, if you just Google Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner, I don't remember the exact web address, but you'll find, you'll get to the spot. We'll add it. Under her we'll initiative, the uh, there's a lot of, I think, useful information there, too. Outstanding. Well, thank you again, Doctor. Thank this you. This is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Please join us for another podcast in the next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to this Cover 2 Resources podcast. This podcast is a production of Cover 2 Resources. It's made possible through donations from listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. That's cover and the numeral 2.org. As always, thank you for listening and sharing this podcast. Together, I believe we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic one life at a time.